Hey Rockstar, welcome to a special episode. My name is Queen Rafi and this is my podcast, Queen Rafi Space. It was International Women's Day on the 8th of March and it's a global day that has been set aside for celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. And for this special episode of the podcast, I spoke with Dr. Amina Abubakar Bello, who is an obstetrician and gynecologist. She studied medicine in Amadebello University and also has a master's degree in public health from Liverpool University in the United Kingdom. Dr. Amina Abubakar Bello is also the first lady of Niger State in North Central Nigeria. Her foundation, known as Ray's Foundation, is a foundation set up with the mission of creating awareness and opportunity for both women and girls to achieve their full potential in an environment safe for both pregnancy and childbirth. The main talking point of this episode was on maternal and neonatal healthcare, girl child empowerment, and also the bias that women face in line with the theme of this year's International Women's Day celebrations. The conversation with her was very enlightening, educative, and informative, and every single second I spent talking to her was filled with value. Do listen in and enjoy the episode. Today is a special episode for International Women's Day, and I'm speaking to one of the most phenomenal women in Nigeria. She was born in Nigeria, and she has done so much for herself, and her name is Dr. Amina Abubakar Shani Bello. Today, we're going to be talking about, you know, maternal death rates and, and neonatal rates and girl empowerment, because that's mostly what Race Foundation does. And today is International Women's Day, and those are kind of the conversations that we should be having because those are issues that directly affect women in this age and has always, you know, affected women for the long time possible. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome to the show, Ma. Thank you very much for having me, Rafiat. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ma. I spent a lot of time just going through Ray's Foundation um, website. I found myself just lost in it and all of the things that you've done. And it was really, really amazing to see all of the things that you've been able to achieve with the foundation. So I wanted to ask, what makes the what makes the transformation and a reduction of maternal and neonatal death rates quite a core passion for you? Uh, that's a, a very good question, actually. By profession, I'm actually a gynecologist and obstetrician. So my work is centered around um, women's health, um, having women have safe deliveries and dealing with other feminine issues. And of course, wherever you have women having delivery, you have babies and units and children together. So my passion is actually having to see that women and and babies do well. And the reason why I, I believe that the transformation is important is because most of the cases where we have maternal and neonatal death are issues that are very preventable, meaning women actually die needlessly because a lot of the conditions that they have that cause the death can be prevented. And so um, when I started my practice as a medical doctor and I developed a passion for um, obstetrics and gynecology, one of the things that I encountered every day during my practice was the, the trials that women go through, the mortality and the morbidity associated with complications that could have been prevented. So the more I saw those cases, the more I felt I needed to have a way to contribute to seeing that these um, mortality rates and morbidity rates are, um, are reduced. And so this is what led me to start the foundation that is basically based on improving maternal health. Um, RACE Foundation is an acronym for Reproductive Health Rights, um, ref- well, Reproductive right, Rights Advocacy, um, Intervention, Safe Spaces and Empowerment. We have a vision that no woman should die from a pregnancy-related causes. 
And our mission is to see that every woman and girl in Nigeria is able to feel, meet her full potential um, so that it enables her to have a safe delivery and healthy uh, reproductive life. Um, and so all our interventions are based on that. And um, we look at a way to see that we are based in Niger State, but basically we hope that we can do that in Nigeria. So since all these things are preventable, for example, now, um, the most common causes of death in uh, maternal death is uh, postpartum hemorrhage. This is a situation where a woman uh, bleeds after she has delivered. You have a second a common cause again, which is from preeclampsia and eclampsia, which is a, a condition where a woman has hypertension in pregnancy that leads to her having convulsions and all kinds of complications that leads to death. Now, in an, if a woman has proper um, antenatal care, this conditions can be completely preventable because, for example, with the preeclampsia, hypertension is going to be detected in pregnancy and the steps taken to prevent her from having the convulsions and complications will be instituted before she even goes into labor. And in for the case of bleeding after pregnancy, if a woman is in the hospital or is attended to during delivery by a skilled birth attendant, meaning someone who has been trained to take delivery safely, then that person is able to detect complications before and as they occur and is able to have the capacity to deal with those complications before they lead to death. So um, with preventable cases, you can see that there's no way if um, things are instituted beforehand, then this death will not occur. And so this is one of the reasons why I believe that if we can transform the health sector to put emphasis on prevention rather than even cure, um, which is also very important, then we'll be able to make a difference in maternal health and um, child health. Thank you so much for explaining that to me, Ma. I really like how you broke it down and talked about, you know, the various preventive measures that could easily be detected earlier if, you know, women just get the right antenatal care and sort of reduce the rate of, you know, maternal deaths that we have. I saw the numbers and they really, they really shook me. I was like, what? These numbers are really, really scary, the statistics. I'm going to put that in the intro of the podcast so you can get to know about it and you can realize that what Her Excellency is doing is quite an important thing that we need, like she said, in the whole of Nigeria, even though they're starting from Niger State, which is like, you know, so um, Northern Nigeria, which is why I want to tailor my next question to you know, the Northern Nigeria, because I know that's where you have started off this particular foundation from. And I love that you gave me what the full meaning of Race Foundation was. I was really wondering, Race Foundation, and that's such a creative way, you know, reproductive health, right? That was really creative that you came up with that. Um, My next question is, what are some unique challenges that you have noticed or sort of encountered that you believe has sort of hindered, especially Northern Nigerian women, from being able to have access to this maternal and neonatal health care? So um, we can look at it in three, in two major ways. The first one is regarding the access to qualitative maternal health care. And the second thing is looking at the social circumstances that you find in, in, in northern Nigeria. So um, when I, if I take the first one, which is access, um, apart from accessibility, even um, um, affordability of maternal health care is one of the um, uh, challenges that women in northern Nigeria face. I'll use it within the context of Niger State, for example. Well, the, the health system in Nigeria works under the primary health care. Uh, it's a, three, a, a three-tiered system. Um, the first tier is the primary health care system or the primary health care clinics. These are small clinics that are located within 
the grassroots areas of people. That's the first point of call that a person would go to to access medical health, sorry, medical care. If you look at the British system, for example, the GP uh, that people will go to before they are referred to either a secondary facility or it's it's equivalent to what we have in our primary health care system. Then the second tier is the secondary care, the secondary um, hospitals where you, we usually call them general hospitals here. Now, the primary health care facilities, they will do basic treatment. Um, the most common ailments that you have in women and children, they will do the antenatal care. They would manage women who are not at risk of any complications in pregnancy and they would take their deliveries. However, when there are specific, uh, when there are other complications or other indications related to a woman's pregnancy, that woman would not be seen in the primary health care because the capacity in terms of resources, um, both human and uh, infrastructure, are not there in the primary health care facilities. She is now transferred to the secondary health care facility. Mm. Now, the general hospital would have um, doctors and specialists there that will be able to give a, a higher treatment than is given to in the primary health care facility. So, for example, now, a woman who has normal pregnancy, um, apart from the normal pregnancy um, symptoms, a little headache here, some malaria, that kind of a thing, she can be seen in the, in the primary health care clinic and uh, even have has a delivery there. But once she starts having other complications, for example, she develops... Um, hypertension, she develops pre-diabetes or diabetes, Um, she has a problem in her kidneys or something, Mm. or she has sickle cell disease, which is quite common in Nigeria, automatically that that means she should not be seen in the primary healthcare facility because she needs a more specialized um, treatment and she's now sent to the general hospital. At the general hospital, you you now have doctors that can manage that. However, in some other cases where you have some more complications, especially when it's related to maybe the baby has been affected or so, you now refer to the tertiary center, which is a specialized center um, that women can go for, can go to. And apart from being a specialized center, it can also be a research center. So those are the tiers of healthcare that we have in Nigeria. Now, the primary healthcare facilities, unfortunately, for the system in Nigeria, it's unfortunately not working as it should. Mm. And so women, that is the easiest place for women to go and get supervised. And it is in the primary healthcare facilities that women are screened when they're doing their antenatal care to find out those that really can have their babies there and and women that need to be transferred. So because a lot of these primary healthcare facilities are not working properly in terms of human resources and infrastructures, now we have a lot of villages, um, rural areas. So you would go to a particular village and there is... There may be one uh, primary healthcare facilities that should be able to serve the population, but you would go there and find there are no doctors, there are no nurses, and there isn't enough. Um, the infrastructure is either decaying or not available. And so, because it is um, that is the closest place to them, women now get discouraged and do not make an extra effort to go to the extra the general hospital. Mm. that is closest to them. In some cases, those hospitals are far away from them. So it's even the accessibility and the availability of it within their environment that hinders women from getting those services. That's number one. Number two, because a lot of Nigerians are living under the poverty line, especially in the rural areas, they are not able to afford healthcare. Most of the healthcare that we have in uh, Nigeria, most people pay out of pocket. 
fortunately, this is being addressed. Um, we have um, a, a health insurance scheme at the federal level and the state levels. So women who have access to that are able to access qualitative and affordable maternal care. But the most of the women in the villages don't have that access. And so when they don't have money, they don't go to the hospital because they are afraid they're going to be asked to pay for services that they cannot afford. So these are two of the most important hindrances. Then in the second group, when we're talking about social and cultural, we have some harmful traditional beliefs in Nigeria that hinders women from going to hospital, especially where we have um, in the rural areas where you have um, traditional beliefs where, uh, like, for example, now in northern Nigeria, um, a, a significant number of people in northern Nigeria, the women have to take permission from their husbands before they are able to go out of their houses. Mm. Uh, and so when you have a woman that is married to a man that is not completely supportive, he may not give her the permission to go to the hospital. And as long as he doesn't give her the permission, she will not go. So that's one harmful traditional practice um, that, that occurs. There are other practices that hinder women from accessing those care. Number one, in northern Nigeria, you have a lot of um, um, Muslims, Muslim women. Now, the general thing in, in Islam is women are usually segregated from men in the, in, the, in the sense that women should not mix freely with men unless it is absolutely necessary. Yeah. And so ideally, if you are a Muslim woman, your preference would be to go to a hospital and be seen by a female attendant. Although Muslim, Islam actually gives a caveat where there are women that are able to provide the services, you rather go and see the women ra- rather than the man. However, it does not stop you at all from accessing healthcare from male medical providers. But you know, people also interpret things differently and they go to extremes sometimes. Absolutely. So in some, the healthcare provider in that clinic may be a man and she would stop herself or her husband will stop her from actually accessing that uh, facility because it is a man that is um, uh, providing those services, you know? So yeah. this may be odd for some people to have in some, especially in the rural areas, people really stick to these cultural things um, and beliefs, and it hinders them significantly from accessing the kind of care that they require. So I think this is just a, a, a little summary of some of the challenges that uh, we made. And then second, and then a, a, a very important one, I think, that I don't want to miss is the um, level of education. Okay, so um, education plays a very big role in the way women in general would come, would look at things from a, from perspective of a person who's educated. Mm. They're able to understand the need um, for going to the hospital and so on. A woman who isn't educated may not understand the gravity of the kind of situation she finds herself in, especially when it relates to pregnancy and delivery because she doesn't have the knowledge of it. One of the biggest problems we have in Northern Nigeria is that when it comes to education, preference is given to the male child to be educated compared to the female child. And so you would find that, for example, in Niger State here, you would have up to 70% of uh, male children, up to 80%, sorry, up to 85% to 90% would be enrolled in schools, even in the rural areas. In comparison, you only have between 45 and 50% of the girl child enrolled in schools. Now, Niger State is in North Central Nigeria, but in, a, in the other parts of Northern Nigeria, you would find similar situations, um, not necessarily in the percentages, but in Northern Nigeria, the girl child is less educated than the male child. And this is a very big hindrance 
to the way in which um, women are able to access um, the information available to them that will help them make the right decisions for their health. Thank you so much. I love that you gave me a really robust answer to this because a lot of times people don't understand why you know, most Northern Nigerian women are not able to access, you know, maternal and neonatal healthcare. A lot of things are like, but it's your health. Why don't you just go for it? I love how you've taken your time to explain the real reasons. And this is, this is, just, I, I love how you explained it. And for anybody listening, it's easier to follow and understand and be in these women's shoes to completely understand what the you know psychology of it is all about. And that's why I like Worries Foundation does. I, I went through the website and I realized you were doing a lot of grassroots information, going to them and making them understand, teaching them and giving them the reason why they should do this, as opposed to how all of the, some of the campaigns are carried out where it's just talk, talk, talk. This time around, you go to them specifically, explain to them why this should be done, why they need to do this and you know, completely try to change, you know, their mindsets. And that that's just amazing. And that's just one of the most incredible things that you've achieved with Race Foundation. I looked at it and there were so many other incredible things that you've done. You've had over 4,400 breast cancer screenings. You've had over 2,600 plus cervical cancer screenings, over 271 plus number of VVF surgeries. That's for, um, I can't remember the full meaning of it now, but I, I'm sure I remember But VVF though. You've done surgeries for that as well. Yes. These are things that are really prominent yes. in Northern Nigeria. It's called vesicle vaginal fistula. Thank you so That's much. VVF. Thank you so much for yeah. helping me do that. Complete that. See, she's a doctor. I'm not. That's how I couldn't get it. <laughs> Thank you so much for completing <laughs> that for me. So, um, and you've also as well done like, you know, a lot of um, girl child empowerment. You know, a lot of girls in secondary school have also been empowered um, by and mentored by other amazing women who have done things in, in, in the line of business and technology. And I just asked you and I read everything and I was like, hmm, is there anything else that Dr. Amina would like to achieve with this organization? After with this foundation, even after all of these other in- incredible things that she's done? Well, to be honest, we haven't, um, it's an ongoing thing. Okay, so for example, the interventions uh, are such that it's an ongoing thing and it's just a matter of improving and expanding on what we have already started. So for example, with the maternal and child health um, intervention, what we are targeting is ensuring that we then we have a sustained reduction in maternal and neonatal death. But what we do is we identify community volunteers around the, uh, in, the, in the communities that are served by a um, primary healthcare facilities. Mm. Currently in Niger, we are working in 15 primary healthcare facilities. Facilities can serve up to 20 communities around them. So in each of these primary healthcare facilities, we have uh, community volunteers, sometimes they're retired nurses or attendants within the communities that have a good reach for women. What they do is they identify the pregnant women in the communities that are served by those primary healthcare facilities. They get in touch with them through phones or even going into their houses to ensure that they would go for antenatal care. Then these women, as, so, as long as they go for antenatal care, they have taken at least four of the antenatal care visits, we ensure that when it is time for them to deliver, they would go to the hospital and they are provided with what we call a mama kit. Basically, the mama kit is a birth kit that contains all the items a woman requires for a safe delivery. Mm. These are some of the items that women are asked to buy for themselves to come with them to the hospital that hinders them from coming to have their babies in the hospital. So once the woman has that kit, 
then she knows she doesn't have to spend any money. She's able to go to the facility and um, have her safe delivery. And we have recorded tremendous success with that particular incentive that we give women. And it's, it's really motivated us to make sure that we continue doing that. So for me, if we're able to expand that particular intervention to other primary healthcare facilities, that would be a good thing. To give you an example, at the start of the program, um, in one particular facility, and it is the same in all the facilities that we work in. At baseline, when we started work in that facility in 2020, there were only about 40 women, 45 women attending antenatal care every month. And at baseline, there were only about 13 women delivering their babies in that facility. But as we speak now, in the first quarter of 2022, we have up to 300 women going for antenatal care every month. And we have up to 40 to 50 deliveries every month within that facility. And these women are able to access um, specialist care when they arrive in that hospital and they have complications, they are referred immediately because we have a transport scheme um, attached to our, our, our intervention. So if a woman goes to any of the primary healthcare facilities that we are working in, we have an arrangement where if there's a, a complication, there's there transportation that takes her straight to the general hospital that allows her to get specialist treatment. So um, in this facility, women are able to have skilled birth attendants and um, safe deliveries. And this is reflected in all the 15 primary healthcare centers that we have. So my aim would be that we are able to extend all this to other primary healthcare facilities. However, you know, Race Foundation works in collaboration with the Ministry of Health. We are not government. We are just trying to help to bl block in the gaps that we see in the facilities. Um, and so um, we work with the ministry to ensure that we're able to expand these services to other facilities. So that is one thing that we would want um, to achieve. The other thing regarding our intervention is with our VVF patients. These are women who have developed the complication of um, incontinence of urine as a result of complications during childbirth. Mm. What ha happens to these women is they have prolonged labor, which means they stay a very long time, over 12 hours in labor, which leads to um, injury to the bladder because what happens is the bladder is located right, directly behind the uterus. Um, anatomically in a, in a woman. So when a woman gets prolonged labor, what happens is the baby's head descends on its way to be delivered and gets stuck. Hmm. And so while it is stuck in the pelvis, it creates a lot of pressure on the bladder, which is lying directly behind the uterus. So by the time the pressure is relieved, when the woman finally gives birth, and I, would, I want to stress here that a lot of women who have this problem end up having babies who do not survive the ordeal because they have been trapped in a long time in the pelvis of the woman and have become asphyxiated. So they would usually die before they are delivered. Oh my God. And so when they are delivered, an injury is, um, is the, the bladder gets injured and a hole gets created. And so because the, the bladder um, stores urine and when a woman now feels the need to press to go to the toilet, she empties her bladder. For these women, there is no storage of the urine. The urine just comes out through her vagina. And the only way in which this ailment can be solved is through surgery. So the foundation, in collaboration, another foundation called Mainstream Foundation, we built a center. It's called the Dr. Amina Abubakar Bello Health Women's Center that is dedicated to 
managing women who have had these complications. Mm. In Nigeria, we have a lot of women that are suffering from this, but because a lot of them are poor and have no access to this kind of services, they are still there without help. So now with the with the center, people just walk in now and we are able to treat them for free. And so they come. So what we would want is a time where this Dr. Amina Health Center, Women's Health Center, is no longer a VVF center, but something else, because we want to prevent these VVFs from happening. So part of what we do in that center is to go out and educate the health workers and the communities on how to prevent this VVF from happening. To answer your question, I would want to see a place where we, as a foundation, are able to facilitate the prevention of VVF ever occurring in, 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 in women. And thirdly, we want to see a situation where we have 100% enrollment of our girls in school. We can do that, you know, definitely. We need the government to enforce the laws that are already in place that says every child, whether it is a boy or a girl, through the child's health rights that we already have in place in Niger State, must have an education. And so we need the government to help us to enforce that law to ensure we, people who do not put their children in school are called to task so that that problem can be resolved. I love what you said about 100%, you know, enrollment of girls in school. I support that because if I didn't go to school, I wouldn't be sitting here speaking to Her Excellency Dr. Amina Obakarbello. I wouldn't be doing that. And if she wasn't allowed to go to school either, she wouldn't be breaking this down for me. Like I was in an amazing class. If she was my lecturer, I would get an A because she explains everything <laughs> to the nitty gritty and breaks it down for you to understand regardless of you know your level of education if you're listening to this podcast and i really enjoy that and i love that you mentioned the 100 enrollment or 100 enrollment on girls because my next question was going to focus on the girl child i mean you have done so much for women today's international women's day i get it but girls are the ones who become women tomorrow so it was important for me that, you know, I asked about this because Ray's Foundation, one of the objectives is actually empowering the girl child as well. You know, so I would like to ask when you were a girl, what was one advice you wish somebody had given you? Well, wow. um, you know, to be honest, my, um, as a child, I'm lucky that my mother is one of the women that one of the few women that were educated for her own generation. Mm. My mother is a retired um, judge. And so when I was growing up, education was, we took it for granted. Mm. Because, because my mother was educated, the issue about education um, not being something women we pursue, honestly, as a child, I never knew. Up until the time I went to university, I wasn't even aware, I wasn't conscious of the fact that there were so many girls who had who were not educated for, for so many reasons. Hmm. I had an excellent education because I went through the public educational system in Nigeria. All my education, primary, secondary, and university was all in public schools in Nigeria. It was my master's that I did in the United Kingdom. So I'm one of the beneficiaries for the educational system in Nigeria when it was excellent at that particular point. At that time, maybe the only thing I would have I would have um, wanted to know at that time when I was a child was how much I was privileged, which I didn't realize until I got older. Mm. But seeing with my interactions ever since I started this work, um, it's made me more determined to make children love education. Like I said, I took mine for granted. Yeah. And so this is why we do the mentorship program, because we understand the challenges that girls face 
um, especially those in secondary school, a lot of girls, when they finish secondary school here in Niger State, if the parents can't afford to put them into university, they don't continue. But what we do with our mentoring program is to make girls see the potential that they have in themselves, to make them love school so that on their own, they can encourage their parents to do the best that they can to ensure that they continue their education. You understand? Yes, I because absolutely there are, do. Because so, their circumstances make it difficult for them to continue. But if they develop a love for education and they see what they can achieve with the mentoring program based, because what we do is we look for women from all walks of life. It doesn't have to be sciences. Any woman who has had an education is using that education in her life now is a mentor to those girls. And so we use that as an opportunity for them to see themselves in these women to make them love the education and make them want to be that these women. And so that love that we want to develop in them is what we, we want to bank on to see that even when there are challenges, they on their own can pursue ways in which they can continue their education. I like that. I like that. Growing up, I grew up in Northern Nigeria as well. And I'm very proud of always saying that to everybody. I saw a lot of girls as at the time we started getting into secondary school. Some of them, you know, you talked about their parents not continuing. I saw girls my age at 13, 14 getting married. And while I was trying to finish secondary school, move to university, girls my age were getting were getting married because they didn't really exactly see the value in education or some of their parents couldn't afford to. So just felt the next thing for you to do is to get married and stuff like that. But I love that, you know, when they're able to, the way that you've designed it in the sense of, you see other women who are like you, you see the potential of, oh, this is what I can be. Because most times they are very constrained by their environment because everybody else in their environment is doing just that, leaving secondary school and getting married. So that looks like the template. But through your mentoring program, yes. they see women yes. who are doctors, nurses, engineers, then that's, that stirs up something. And I, re- I love that format because, yes, that, that really, really works. And I wish that yes, some of the and girls... An, yes, and an important thing is that they will see women who are also married. Exactly, exactly. They are married and they, have, and they went to school. For example, I always use myself as an example. I got married while I was in university. I was in my third year in medical school when I got married. And I completed my education and continued and even became a specialist. So it does, the marriage should not hinder anybody from getting married. So even if you want, even if you want to get married or if your parents want you to get married, it does yes. not stop you from having an education. Absolutely. I, I got married in my uni as well. I feel so much closer to you. <laughs> anyway, um, let me move to the very last point here I have. Today is International Women's Day. It is, um, the theme for this year is Break the Bias. There are one million and one biases against women. In fact, I think that in Nigeria, we have our own special rules of biases as well. But I wanted to you to just talk to me briefly on one bias against women that you wish didn't exist or if you had like the superpowers, you would just make it go away. The fact that it is assumed that women are incapable of making right decisions. For me, that's the bias that I have found resonates everywhere I go. People think that, I mean, women are considered uh, emotional and so cannot make rational uh, decisions. This is one bias I think that is very unfair. When I think that actually women even make more rational decisions than men, because we would weigh things deeply before we even go ahead and make, take a decision. That's one. And I think the fact, another bias is the fact that women are incapable or not as capable as men in the, um, in the workforce, for example. 
You don't mm. have to be, yes, men are stronger than uh, uh, women in terms of physical strength, but it doesn't mean that women don't have the same intellectual capacity as men to be able to get um, administrative roles. Because one of the most glaring things that you find is that majority of the administrative roles that you have across board in whatever fields you have is given to men rather than women. And because the idea is women are, don't have the capability to take those administrative roles. This is one bias that I, that I think would be very important to get rid of because like Race Foundation is a woman-led organization. And you yourself have said you have seen the thing that we do and the things that we have done. Obviously, the fact that I'm a woman or the CEO, the COO, the chief operating officer of the foundation, who is a woman, I believe is one of the strengths that we have that has allowed us to actually achieve what we have achieved. So we cannot say that women cannot take those administrative positions that are available, that men take. So this is one particular bias that I think um, we need to get over and give women the opportunities to show their full potential and what they can do in terms of um, contribution, contributing to the development of Nigeria as a whole. I absolutely agree with all of the biases that you spoke about. And I think almost every woman can sort of know, um, relate to those things because those are some, especially the first one where you said women can make rational decisions. There's always this conversation of, oh, women are emotional. Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad that you spoke on all of that. And I'm so thankful for your time that you've given me today for this podcast. It has been amazing, completely amazing having a conversation with you. I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being here. Have a really beautiful Thanks day, Ma. Thanks for having me. I have no doubt in my mind that you learned so much about maternal and neonatal health care as you were listening to that episode. I learned so much as well, just having that interview with her. If the work that Raise Foundation does is something that fascinates you just like me, please know that you can volunteer your services, time, and even donate to the cause as well. Because till date, Nigeria still contributes about 10% of global deaths of pregnant mothers and the latest figures when I checked showed a maternal death rate of about 576 deaths per 100,000 life births that occur. That figure makes it the fourth highest on earth. Quite staggering and sad if you ask me. So please, let's all come together and play our part in reducing the statistics in any way that you can. I'm going to put the website of Raise Foundation in the show notes so you can click on it, see all of the good things they do, and see how you can best make yourself useful as well if you are interested in the cause. I would also like to especially thank Her Excellency Dr. Amina Abubakar Bello for her time and all the knowledge that she shared on this episode. I was truly honored to have her on. Thank you so much for listening and as always, have yourself a really, really beautiful weekend.